0: pray and then get into the message today. Uh, Father, we just thank you for this time together in your word. And Jesus, you told us that it was good for you to leave so that your spirit could come. Your spirit could lead us into truth. Your spirit, it says in Ephesians, is the seal that holds on to us that that is uh, guaranteeing the future that we have in Christ. Your spirit, you say, convicts the world of sin and righteousness. And the coming judgment your spirit strengthens us and equips us to do the work that you called us to do your spirit nourishes us and transforms us father we thank you for the ministry of the holy spirit to us and through us and we ask god that your spirit would be using your word today to lead us to truth to free us from any bondage that we have to sin fear and shame to help us to live in your grace and to love you and to share your grace with others Pray these things in your name, Father. Amen. All right, so we're in the midst of this sermon series. I'm glad you asked. We're actually almost done with it. Uh, I'm excited because I like a uh, new sermon series, but uh, I like good, good ones that we're in, and we're in there right now. And uh, just by way of reminder, this is not just to give you information, right? Uh, Paul warns the Corinthian church that knowledge does what? Knowledge puffs us up, but love builds us up. So we need to take the knowledge that we're gaining. About God's word and God's truth, and make sure that we incorporate it into how we love God and how we love other people. Part of that is that you, as a believer, as you have these answers or maybe refreshed in them, you are being equipped to love others with the truth and help other people with their struggles. You're also being equipped to endure because it it always amazes me, at least in my own life and other people's lives. I know the truth of God's word, but I go through hardship or difficulty, and in that time, I am confused, and I become dismayed or discouraged, and so then I need my brothers and sisters to speak to me about God's truth in those times of struggle, and I need the spirit to be reminding me of what I know. Thankfully, he does that. So this is about getting you information, but it's about giving you information so that you can be equipped. Uh, Because of that, you've probably noticed that you don't just get an answer to the question, but you get kind of like the sermon load with that question which I mean what did we expect it's a sermon right this is not a call-in radio show Uh, this is a time of encouraging and equipping from God's Word Uh, so here we are and this this is I hope you brought your hot pads today because this is a hot issue a little bit of controversy over this I hope that we can kind of turn that down a little bit and just rest in the truth of God's Word we're talking about the unforgivable sin and warnings about falling away like in Hebrews 6. So we're talking about the unforgivable sin and warnings about people falling away, like in Hebrews 6. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to remind us of this amazing story that Jesus tells us uh, that we can keep in mind as we study maybe these hot issues that become difficult for us. Uh, Jesus was talking about uh, lostness in general in the end of Luke, and he was sharing lots of stories about how God cares for those who are lost and those who pe- people who are not reconciled to God through him. And he talks about a lost coin. Remember that? And how a woman had 10 coins and she lost one. And so she set the nine aside for a moment. She lit up the house with every lamp that she has, which wasn't electricity. It was like burning fire right like an oil lamp or candles in her house and she swept the whole house and she searched everywhere and then she found the one coin and then she did what every sane woman does she ran out into the street and invited her neighbors to celebrate because she lost one coin and now she found it so let's have a party that's what you do when you lose things right you don't you're not ashamed but you celebrate when you find them that's what jesus encourages us to do anyways and then there's this parable about this shepherd Now, this shepherd is an A-plus shepherd. He gets a 99% every time he brings the flock back, right? So he's got 100 sheep, and he comes back with 99, but there's one missing. So what does this good shepherd do? He safely secures the 99 in the sheep pen, and he goes and he hunts down the one sheep. And he needs that one sheep, and he finds that sheep, and he celebrates, and he rejoices that he found that lost sheep. And so he's talking about more personal things now, right? So first we have this value, like you're God's treasure. Then we have this sheep, like you're God's under God's care. And then he tells this last one, and it's about a lost son and an incredibly generous father. And he says there once was a man with two sons, an older son and a younger son. That's how that works in general, in case if you were wondering. And the younger son went to his father and said, Father, give me my inheritance I want to leave our household. I want to go and live on my own. Now, this would break a father's heart then because households were grown with each generation. And a part of loving your family was building strength into your family. And so this son is in some ways disowning his family and saying, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to go live somewhere else. I'm going to make my own household and my own life away from you. So it's not just greed, but it's pride and rejection his father now what do you think that father did that's right he grounded that kid took away his xbox took away the car keys and says until you can learn some gratitude you have no privileges kid no not at all instead he gives him his portion of the inheritance and the son leaves and says that the son spends the inheritance on wild living and he throws parties and he drinks and he gambles and he pays for women and all these things and eventually he's broke and he's in a state of crisis and his friends abandon him and he realizes that he's going to starve to death so he becomes a farmhand on a pig farm now if you are a jewish person this is disgusting this is like on one of those dirty jobs channels that like no one would do pigs were unclean this means that he could never connect with god either he's just isolated and alone and he's starving And he's so hungry that as he's feeding the pigs their food, he wishes that he could eat it. Can you imagine being in that place? So he's destitute. He's in a deep place of poverty, physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And in that place of desperation, he concocts a plan. He decides that he's going to play, let's make a deal with his dad Have you ever played let's make a deal with someone when you're in a bad place and and you're like, okay, how can I get out of it? And you think, who has the ability to get you out of it? And then you make a plan, a proposal for them so that they will say yes to the deal that you desperately need. And so here's his let's make a deal plan. He's going to go home. He's going to apologize to his dad. And he's going to say, dad, uh, listen, I know I don't deserve this, but if I could just be a servant on our estate. I won't ever ask anything from you again. I won't live with you. I'll stay in the servant's quarters. I could be the lowest servant, just anything, because I know that you take care of your servant's dad, right? So his deal is, I will be your slave, dad. I will not be your son. And so he starts on his long journey home, a journey hoping for a better form of slavery than the type of slavery he's currently in. And it says that his dad was on the porch, and while the son was a long way off, his dad saw him and ran to him and have you ever had that thing you know you've got something important to say so you're running through it in your head over and over again i'm probably not the only person who does that i think because you're hoping to not blow it in that moment and he's got this speech prepared i don't think he's prepared for his dad to run which by the way was very rare Uh, jewish men didn't run jewish women running was for children running was for slaves and poor people Uh, you walked and you didn't hurry yourself Because if you were being hurried, that meant that you're not important, someone else is, right? And so you show your importance by never running. It's a really good fitness plan, by the way, being self-important in that way. Uh, So when the father is running, this is a really weird thing. And as the father comes up, you can just imagine the son getting ready for the speech, but it says there's no time for that because the father gets there and he throws his arms around his son and he kisses him on the neck and he says, you're here, I'm going to restore you. He puts a ring on his finger, the family ring, and he puts his own robe around him. He says, bring my best robe for my son. And he says, kill the fatted calf and cancel work today. We're going to have a party because my son was lost, but now he's found. My son was dead, but now he's alive again. This is a story of God's grace, Jesus says. This is a story of God's forgiveness and love. Now, the story doesn't end there because the older brother doesn't get the memo. He's out in the fields working. And when he comes back and sees this party, he's like, it's not party time. It's Tuesday. We never have parties on Tuesday. Tomorrow's a work day. We don't party at night on Tuesday. We get ready for work the next day. We got serious business to do. My brother took one third of our estate and we got to make sure that we're okay. We have no time to party. So he comes in. And he wants to know what the party is about. And he asks the servant, what's going on? Why is there a party? And the servant says, your brother's back. Your dad's throwing a party for him. And the son refuses to go in, the older brother refuses to go in. So the father comes out and the son is livid. He is irate, he won't go in. And the father tries to explain to him why this is important, why this is valuable, why he celebrates. But the older brother doesn't get it. The older brother refuses to live in grace and accept grace and love grace. So as we talk about this passage or these passages, One of the things that we need to understand and come to is that God is astoundingly gracious. This is often called the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means wildly spending, lavishly living. And sure, the son did that for a little while, but then he was broke. The true story is the prodigal nature of the father who is so generous that he restores. He's so generous that even though the son wasted what he was given, he comes back and receives another place in the household, the place of a son, a restored son not a slave, and so God is astoundingly gracious, and sometimes people become uncomfortable with it. Sometimes we become uncomfortable with how gracious God is, and when that happens, God's grace continues, but we stay right there, and we start to lose sight of that grace. We start to lose experience of that grace, and we ourselves start to become ungracious towards others. Now, was Jesus ever ungracious towards others? Not really. There are times we wrestle with this. There's times where we see Jesus say really harsh things to people. Like, he tells the Pharisees that they're serpents and vipers and whitewashed tombs and deceivers. Why is Jesus doing that? He's doing that because he wants them to repent. He's doing that because he doesn't want them to be stuck in that place, but instead to learn about grace And so even when Jesus is correcting, Jesus is still gracious. And so part of this for us is, are we willing to let God's grace be God's grace? Are we willing to let God's forgiveness be as full as God's forgiveness is? God's love to be as extravagant as God's love actually is. These are important questions because God is more gracious than each of us still. And God is more loving than each of us still. And we should not become satisfied with our understanding of the grace and love of God that we have right now. We should want to understand and live in that more and more so that we can be more and more like Jesus. So now we have this big idea in the room that this is actually about God's grace. I wanna talk about some foundational truths that are going to guide us through these topics. First of all, sometimes when we're talking about unforgivable sin, when there's warning passages in scripture, some of us who are prone to anxiety, or maybe obsessive thoughts or um, unwelcome thoughts which some of us have we have these intrusive thoughts into our minds we can become anxious and afraid in the midst of this but god says do not be afraid in fact in 2 timothy 1 6 i forgot to look up this reference it could be 1 8 sometimes my brain gets fuzzy with that god says for god did not give us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind or self-control. So as we're studying this, don't become anxious or afraid. Trust in the Lord. Next, we need to remember that the Bible never contradicts itself. It's always harmonious. The Bible never contradicts itself. It's always in harmony. But sometimes we come across things that feel like an apparent contradiction. Have you ever discovered one of these things before? I know that I have. I've been reading, and I'm like, wait a minute, how can that be true? And then that draws me into deeper study and greater understanding. But sadly, for some people, it confuses them, and it decreases their faith, and they become discouraged. Let's be like that first group, where we look at God's Word intently and let God lead us to truth so that we see the harmony of Scriptures here. Third, I want to encourage us to take Jesus seriously because sometimes what happens is that when we take these passages and we kind of let them cool down and they they become less hot or we take those sharp edges off we stop taking it seriously and we put it in the pile of things not to worry about or be concerned about I mean I hope there's never anything in God's word that we're genuinely not concerned about that we don't really care about and then finally be teachable be teachable I've been where you are before, literally, physically. I've been the guy who listens to the sermons. And sometimes what happens is that uh, someone from the pulpit shares something that you disagree with or you don't like. And in that moment, you've got this switch inside that you can turn off. And that's that learning place. And so even if you disagree with this today, I'm just asking you to think about what I'm saying, to study it further, if you want, I'd love to sit down with you and have a respectful dialogue and look at the scriptures with you and, le- and look at God's word with you. Uh, sometimes what happens is we develop these philosophies or these ideas about how God works, and I call them philosophies with respect and genuineness, but we need to acknowledge that philosophies are lower than theologies. Philosophies are our thoughts about how life works. Theology is truth about how God works and how life works according to the Bible. And so let's make sure that we have a teachable spirit as we look at this together. Okay, so here's the passage uh, with what's called the unforgivable sin, Uh, which, by the way, the word unforgivable sin never happens in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Uh, Jesus instead describes something that happens in people's lives. He says, therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Wow. That is a really, really heavy thing, right? Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He's speaking very clearly. Here's some things that stand out. Jesus says people will be forgiven. Isn't that good news? That people will be forgiven? And beyond that, he says they'll be forgiven every sin and even blasphemy, which is like speaking against God, like tearing down the name of God. By the way, if you were Jewish, this is a big deal because in Leviticus, it says that if you speak against the name of God, then you should be stoned. You should be held accountable for your words, because God is great and he is our deliverer and he is the one who is saving us. And if you're speaking against him, we don't want you to be a part of our nation. And by the way, uh, stoning sounds really severe to us because this is what we imagine. Everybody in town goes out and gets a rock and just starts throwing rocks at someone. It's really brutal, right? Can you imagine everybody like participating? like little kids throwing, hucking. They're like, I hit him in the head. You know, it's like this really psychopathic thing almost. Stoning was a merciful consequence. What they would do is they would take someone up to a high place and they would shove them off of that cliff, which sounds really hard, but when you don't have like rifles or you know, can't behead someone, it's a very merciful way of capital punishment because when you fall from a great height and you hit the ground, you die fast in general. And then for some reason, if they didn't die, what was gonna happen was that big guys like me or Chuck or Marcus or some of us, we'd get a big rock and then we'd aim and we'd drop it, and hopefully we would finish the job in a quick and painless manner. Now, this is capital punishment. There's no way that you could pretend it's not, right? And for those of you with compassion who, like, when you see a slug that has drowned in a puddle, you're like, poor slug. This is a hard moment for you that this is the truth of God's Word. This is what happened, okay? So when Jesus is saying that blasphemy is going to be forgiven, this is mind blowing, and we're already in a place where grace is astounding, and some people are going to have a hard time with this. But then Jesus says, But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Wow. Okay. Now, if God is telling me that there's something that I could do that can result in a lack of forgiveness, a lack of salvation, maybe, a lack of fellowship with my Heavenly Father, I want to pay attention. That's a really big deal. And then he says this. He says, whoever speaks a word against me, right? Man, that's going to be forgiven. I'll let that go. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. Now, what's the age to come? That's eternity. That's heaven, right? And that, that means that, like, eternally not forgiven. It's not just that God's going to be mad at you for a little while, and then you're okay, is that there's going to be eternal consequences for this choice. This is a really big deal. And when I was a kid, my parents told us not to play with sticks and to definitely not sword fight with sticks. But we were three brothers, and what is cooler than fighting with swords when you're a little kid? And so, what? knives, that's right, knife fight, yeah. So one time, my dad was doing some work on the house, and he was cutting down some one-by material into the right width, which meant that there were these eight-foot-long pieces of one-by-one that were trash by the side of the house. That is the biggest sword. You already know where this is going, right? So my little brother and I find these things, and I'm like, let's sword fight. My little brother's wonderful. He says, mom and dad say that we shouldn't do that. And I'm like, mom and dad don't know what they're talking about. It's going to be Okay so we start fighting with the swords and mine has knots and so he hits mine and like the top foot falls off that's okay it's just the foot and we're fighting with the swords and then i hit his sword and my second knot breaks and the six feet that are after that fall down at his head and i can just see this in slow motion even to this day And it's got like this nasty fork on the end that looks like a shrimp fork. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a, no, it's not the shrimp fork. What is the one that has the, it's like a pirate's claw or a crab's claw underneath. Maybe it's a crab fork. I don't know. There's a stick, it's a fondue sometimes, whatever. It's nasty looking, okay? It's nasty looking. And I see this come and then it strikes him in the head like this. Right around his eye. And he's got two nasty red lines. Didn't bleed, but he's got two nasty red lines. And he's hurting. He's he's like three, he's four, and I'm like eight, okay? I didn't want to hurt him. This always happens to little kids, right? They're like, it was an accident. You're like, you did the thing I told you not to do. It's not an accident when you disobey. It's an unintended consequence, right? And so he goes inside, and he sounds like somebody is going to kill him, right? That's what happens to little brothers, little sisters, when something goes wrong. They lose it, and they sound like the world's going to end. And so he's running ahead of me, and there's nothing faster than a little brother who's about to tattle. I cannot intercede, right? I cannot get there fast enough. I can't talk him out of it and he gets inside and my mom sees on her baby and then she sees me come in the room unforgivable sin right thou shalt not hurt the baby and so and so I get in a lot of trouble and it's because I didn't listen to the first instruction don't play with sticks what comes after that you'll put someone's eye out right And so I almost did. You know what we stopped doing for quite a while? I wish we stopped doing it forever. Children are not good at obeying, right? We stopped playing with sticks like this. And what's crazy is when we came to this church, I was talking with someone at a fellowship meal about this story, and he said, you know, one of my little brothers is missing an eye. And he said, we were playing with sticks, and we poked his eye out. And I was like, and so now you know what we tell our kids every time they're playing? you're going to poke someone's eye out. Stop it, right? Like, you you can, there's safe ways to do this. Let's not do it in the dangerous way. It's a word of warning. It's very severe. And so we want to listen to this, but we also want to understand it wisely. So we're going to start with the context, which is always where we go, right? We know that if we take the text out of the context, you end up with a con. You end up with untruth, and it's going to lead you into a place that you don't want to go. So let's start at the beginning. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. Wow, that's pretty awesome, right? It's a really big deal. Sometimes there's like verses that are in the context and they seem short because of the bigger deal coming, but let's just pause and have this holy wow moment inside where we realize that Jesus has power and authority in a huge way and does awesome things when he's on this earth. And as a result, all the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? Which means they were wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's come to deliver us and save us? Okay? So they're seeing what Jesus is doing, and they're having the logical conclusion, this is God's chosen one. All of the crowds are having this. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub. Beelzebul, pardon me, the ruler of demons. That's another name for for Satan, right? Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus brings a point of logic. This doesn't work. If I am casting out demons with the power of demons, it doesn't work. Satan isn't going to do that. He's not for no demons in people. He's for more demons on more people, right? He's for more demonic influence and control in people's lives, not less. And if for some reason he gets divided, then everything's going to fall apart for him. And while he's foolish, he's not stupid, right? And so Satan isn't going to do this. And then Jesus says, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Now this term, your sons drive them out, that's actually your disciples, right? So rabbis, when they were training people, they were like sons to them. They were bringing them into the family business, if you will. They were their apprentices. And so the rabbis had disciples who would also drive demons out. And Jesus is saying, do your disciples do this by the power of Satan? And the answer is obviously no, they don't. They do it by God's power. And therefore, Jesus says, they will judge you, like their actions will judge you, and they will expose the wickedness of your thoughts. He says, and if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and God is offering you the kingdom right now. Will you pay attention? Will you listen to me? Then he explains even further, how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Wow. So Jesus is creating this metaphor where Satan has taken possession of God's house. But Jesus is a stronger man, and he can go in, and he can bind Satan, and he can kick him out. So Jesus is saying, I am greater than Satan. My power is greater than Satan's power. It's important that we recognize this truth beloved because sometimes we get this false concept within our faith that satan and jesus stand as equals not at all satan is a created being jesus is the creating being jesus power is unlimited and he is eternal satan's power is limited and he is not eternal he is we could say mortal but that means man he has a time span right he has a limited time span and so uh, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's greater in this situation. And he says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And any, anyone who does not gather with me scatters. He's warning them. Hey, Pharisees, pay attention. I have come to gather you in. I have come to draw you near to God. And if you're not gathering with me, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be spread abroad. You need to listen to me. He's actually talking to them about their nation. He says, if you don't come to me, Israel, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to spread you across the land. Does anybody know what happened in AD 70 in Jerusalem? That's AD in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, 70. Jerusalem was destroyed, right? And many say that was judgment for rejecting the son. And according to Jesus' words, probably so, right? Judgment for rejecting the son in this moment. So then he says, therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven them, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. So in the context, what has happened? Jesus has healed a demonically possessed person, so that person can speak and hear, right? It's a big deal. So Jesus heals a man. Then the crowds are saying, wow, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Look at the power that's happening. Look at what's going on. This is what it says the Messiah will do. And we think he's the one that God has sent. But the Pharisees hear this and what do they do? They cast doubt on this. They come in and they see what Jesus is doing and they accuse Jesus of using the power of Satan. That is a really big deal, isn't it? They are misunderstanding Jesus and they're the religious leaders of the people. And so when they say that, what is that gonna do? That's going to lead people into error. They don't just say that, though. They accuse him of having an unclean spirit. If you flip over to the same story in the book of Mark, it says that he says this at the end of the story because they were saying that he had an unclean spirit. In other words, they're not just saying that Jesus used Satan's power. They're saying that Jesus is demonized and he's under the control of demons. Now, if you know the story of Jesus' life, who was actually in control of Jesus' life and what spirit did Jesus have? The Father is in control of Jesus' life. Jesus is very clear at this. I do what I see my Father doing. I say what I hear my Father saying. When he was baptized, the Spirit of the Lord descended on him, and he did his ministry according to the power of the Spirit. This is a really big deal that they're saying. Is They're not just saying that Jesus has the power of Satan in his ministry. They're literally saying Jesus is energized by Satan, and spiritual beings of darkness are the controlling force in his life have nothing to do with him, right? That's what they're really saying to the people around them. So this is what the Pharisees had done. What had the Pharisees done? Well, they observed miracles performed by the Spirit. That should be a capital S, sorry about that. By the Holy Spirit. And then they consciously rejected the logical conclusion that Jesus is Savior and has Holy Spirit power. All of the crowd, non-religious people, people who are not trained, see the obvious thing and they say, this is the Messiah, the one who has come to save us. They're ready to put their faith in him. But what do the Pharisees do? They look at all that Jesus is doing and in their minds, they're concocting a different story. They're creating a lie and they're saying, nope, not the Savior, not done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Must be some other force then they declare that his works are from the devil. They believe that his works are from the devil. They lie to themselves, and then they tell other people that this is the case. So this is what the Pharisees do, a four-step process. Seeing the work of Jesus, denying that Jesus' work is from from the Lord, declaring or determining within themselves that his works are of the devil, and telling others that this is the case. So this is the Pharisees' actions, right? And then we need to ask, did Jesus warn them or accuse them? Did Jesus say, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? No, he didn't. He talked about what happens when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It seems like he's warning them to me. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word in John five twenty-four, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Anybody know if Jesus came to the earth to condemn people on the earth or if he came to free them from condemnation? Free them, right? Right? This is John 3, fundamental truth. Jesus says, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Then he says, I'm gonna come back and judge the world, right? But only once I've offered salvation. Jesus tells us in John 5, 24 that anyone who hears his word and believes will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Could that possibly include people who were confused about the Holy Spirit and his ministry? I think so, yes. You know why I think so? Because that was me. And that was you. Because you once didn't believe in Jesus. You once didn't have faith in Jesus, and now you do. There was a time in my life where I was like, well, yeah, Jesus probably lived, but he didn't die for me. There's a time in my life where when I saw people moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, I was like, those people are wacky. Anybody been there before? You don't have to raise your hand, right? But there are moments, right, where we have doubts, where we're concerned, and we we look at people and we're like, I don't know if that's of the Lord, and I've I've heard these conversations before. Well, you're speaking against the Holy Spirit. Are, Are you guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit then? I mean, are you telling me that anybody who's been confused in this way will never have forgiveness of their sins? Or should we rest in Jesus' clear word that says that anyone who believes in him will not be under judgment, but instead has passed from death to life. I'm going to go with what's clear over what's not clear. I think that's an important thing that we do that in the text. We stick with what's very clear, and we don't allow what's unclear to turn us away from what is clear. The Bible is very clear. When you believe in Jesus, all sins are forgiven. You will not come under judgment for those sins. Now, that might mean that you come under correction for those sins. That's a different matter altogether. God will want to purify you and sanctify you for all eternity, but you still will not come under judgment or condemnation for those sins. Moreover, the Bible talks about what happens when a believer sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, should every Bible have an asterisk with fine print? except for that one terrible sin. And if you commit that, really sorry, you're out. You're out now and you're out forever. You have blown it. Good job, big guy. I hope you learned your lesson. Should the Bible Bible have that? I, I don't think so. It says all unrighteousness for a reason. It doesn't qualify what sin you will be forgiven of for a reason. God's grace is greater than your sin. That's Paul's big argument, right? If there's more sin, what is there more of? Grace. Will there ever be so much sin that there won't be enough grace? No, God's grace is greater than all of our sin. But sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we can't conceive of limitless grace. And sometimes we think that sin can somehow exceed that. And so we take passages like this and we let them stretch our minds out of proportion into something that they're not saying. Jesus is warning the Pharisees. He's describing to them something that could happen to them. He's saying this is dangerous. We need to understand, though, that as a believer, when you repent, your relationship with Jesus is renewed, and Jesus cleanses you and forgives you. Why does this matter? Well, this matters because sometimes even as believers, we say no to the Holy Spirit, don't we? We denigrate his nature in our lives. We disagree. Holy Spirit, you're asking me to do that. I don't wanna. I'm not gonna. You can't make me. Have you ever discovered this attitude in you sometimes when the Holy Spirit is asking you to do something? What's wild is I've found that it's like little things in my life at times, where that rebelliousness that's still inside, I want to resist the truth of God's word. I want to resist the call of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit say, you don't understand how great I am? you are in a place of blasphemy. You think that your will is more important than my will. You think that you know more than I do, and you're not going to obey me. Well, not at all. In fact, I have the opportunity to repent. I have the opportunity to say, God, I have resisted you in this way, and I'm sorry for resisting you, and I want to walk in fellowship with you. I'm going to let you be in control, right? I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to agree that it was wrong that I did that, And then God, who is faithful and just, is going to forgive that sin. He's going to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, and I'm going to be restored to a healthy relationship with him in that moment. I'm going to have a good state of relationship with him. I'm going to walk with him again. So what then could cause a condition of unforgiveness now and in eternity? Continuing in sin? Continuing in sin? Maybe. We'll talk about that in a minute. Some people think continuing in sin. The only thing? Rejecting Jesus, right? Jesus says the ones who do not believe stand condemned and will die in their sin. Jesus said the one thing that leads to someone being unforgiven for all eternity is lack of faith in him. He says that's the one thing. That's the one thing. So if there's any unforgivable sin in the Bible, which Jesus doesn't say there's unforgivable sin, but if there is, it's not believing in Jesus. We know that all sin can be forgiven. If you stop not believing in Jesus, meaning if you start believing in Jesus, what happens? You stand in forgiveness and you have everlasting life. The first thing that happens is everlasting life. The next thing that happens is forgiveness and all sorts of wonderful things that come with everlasting life. So Jesus is not saying that this this thing where you can be confused about the Holy Spirit, which the Pharisees are, is what's happening. So then blasphemy of the spirit seems to indicate a condition of the heart that results in continual rejection of Jesus. A condition of the heart that results in continual rejection of Jesus. You remember what happened in Exodus to Pharaoh? It says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart, right? But if you read the story in the beginning, who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh is. Hardening your heart means strengthening against something. Strengthening against something. So there's a while where I had to go on this wild elimination diet I did not enjoy this time. I was told that I couldn't eat anything that ended in Ed, like bread. <laughs> and uh, I liked the food and any other wheat product in general. I also couldn't have any form of sugar, like sugar cane, beet sugar, all sorts. I could have two teaspoons of honey a day. Um, I like sugar as well, as it turns out. And so it was not very enjoyable. And so I had to harden my heart towards the food that I loved. And I did this for years. And I slowly introduced foods back into my diet to see what was causing me to be sick. At the end of this time, sugar was the last thing to introduce because sugars are inflammatory things if you have a system with lots of inflammation, which allergies are a form of inflammation. And I remember the first time I had a brownie at a church potluck and I put it in my mouth and I was like, that is really sweet. I only ate one bite. I was like, that's not very good. Later that week, I tried to have a soda, a Coca-Cola. My favorite drink, Coca-Cola. Put it in my mouth, and I was like, that is gross. That is, how did I drink that before? That is disgusting. I'd hardened myself towards that so that I would not turn to it again. Jesus is saying that you can get to a place where you're so hard that you'll never allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to Jesus. You will always resist him. Does that mean that God is unwilling for you to be saved? No, it says that God is not willing that any perish, that God wants to draw all people to himself through Jesus Christ. It means that you yourself can enter into a place where you become so hard to the Holy Spirit, you have an internal condition, that you just blaspheme him all the time. you just, man, that is junk. That stuff is garbage. You people with your God are crazy. That is my enemy. I don't want anything to do with that. You're in a place of continually rejecting Jesus. Now, honestly there are other people who interpret this differently and you can google this and you can read 30 websites and you'll find 30 different interpretations because it's an unclear passage because jesus doesn't really define it but what does god define so well his grace and his forgiveness and that's linked to his character right that's linked to his character let's talk about peter for a minute does peter reject god Does Peter reject what the Holy Spirit is doing in Jesus' life? He does, right? He he does not want Jesus to go to the cross. He tells Jesus that. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Like, get behind me, enemy. Then, Then at the cross, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus really hardcore. Now, some people would say, well, Jesus says he'll forgive any blasphemy against him. He does. He does. But again, Jesus demonstrates and proves over and over again how gracious God is. And what does Jesus do to Peter? He restores Peter, right? He seeks Peter out individually. He spends enough time with Peter so that Peter understands his grace because Peter doesn't understand God's grace enough yet. So we need to understand God's grace more. We need to recognize that this is a dangerous heart condition that people can leave themselves in. We also need to take heed. Paul says to us in Ephesians, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not put out the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do not resist that. Does Paul say if you do that, you're going to be unforgiven? No, it's just a warning. And you need this Spirit in you to continue to live the life that God has for you, to walk in Jesus Christ. Okay, so what about warning passages like Hebrews 6, which, by the way, these things get layered in people's minds. This blasphemy of the Spirit, these warning passages, they get sandwiched together. And then they say, see, it says in four places that it's dangerous, that you can fall away, and then you're going to end up in trouble. Well, in Hebrews 6 Uh, 1 through 8, it says this, therefore let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith, faith in God, teachings about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are just all the basic teachings, okay? And if we do this, or and we do this, we will do this if God permits. So Hebrews is written to Jewish believers who were being lured away from jesus back into judaism basic teachings about who jesus is if you read the beginning of hebrews it talks about jesus who is the high priest who is more capable than any other high priest and is the king this is this is the one he is the guy you've been waiting for jewish people don't turn to anybody else because he is sufficient for you everything you've done in your life until finding him was pointing to him And so all of these basics were important for them to know that jesus was raised from the dead that the ritual washings that were necessary in judaism no longer necessary dead works according to the law things that don't give you life are not going to give you life it's only faith in jesus that gives you life and then he continues on he says for it is impossible to renew to repentance Those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. Wow. Do you hear all those descriptors of those people? You know what this says? These are people who have put their faith in Jesus. They've tasted grace, the eternal gift, right? The heavenly gift. They've even received the Holy Spirit. They have been born again. These are not people who do not know God. This is one of the primary arguments that people use in this text. They say the people who fall away are people who were not true believers. Who receives the Holy Spirit aside from those who have put their faith in Jesus? Who has received grace from heaven aside from those who have put their faith in Jesus? The answer is nobody. Nobody. This text is absolutely about people who have believed. And then they've fallen away. And who have fallen away This is is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. So what that means is they're, they're becoming the Jews who reject Jesus. This is a very, very harsh statement that this author is making. He's saying you are the very ones who demanded his crucifixion. You are the very ones who rejected him. You become just like the rest of Israel. You are crucifying Jesus again by rejecting his resurrection, by rejecting his death for you and you're making him contemptible. Contemptible means to like hold someone in disorder or out of order in your heart. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They held Jesus in contempt. Jesus, you are blaspheming. Jesus, you are not the Son of God. Jesus, you are not going to do the things that you said that was, you were going to do. But he did, didn't he? So they've turned back to sacrifices and rituals, rejecting the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Paul says, that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law through Jesus Christ. They are rejecting that. He says that he became sin for us on our behalf so that he who knew no sin would give us the righteousness of God, would make us righteous. That's pretty awesome that Jesus did that for us. And they're turning their back on him. This is to their own fault, the text says. Their minds are deceived. They can't be persuaded to come back. I want to say that again. Their minds are deceived. They cannot be persuaded to come back. Their hearts are hard to Jesus. Have you ever met someone who's fallen away from the Lord and they don't want to talk to you about it anymore? They don't want to talk to the Bible about the Bible. They don't want to pray with you. They don't want you to pray for them. They're like, I am done. I am absolutely out. You guys are religious wacko right-wing nut jobs and I don't want anything to do with you. Right? That has nothing to do with you. That has everything to do with their rejection. What do you do with those people? It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to turn them around. That's exactly what it's saying, Don. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to turn them around. You are not going to convince them. You're not going to change them, but God can change them, can't he? Is there anyone that's outside of God's reach? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Then it says, for the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it, and produces, that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So that's talking about believers who receive the truth of God and bear fruit. He says, you're going to be blessed. God's going to reward you for that. Then he says, but if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end it will be burned. So it's saying that their faith has become worthless. James says that they have dead faith. It is of no use it is dead faith it is of no use have you ever been to someone who uh who their home they've lost a pet and instead of burying that pet they've taken that pet to a taxidermist and they're like this is muffins he left us he crossed the rainbow bridge seven years ago but we vacuum him weekly and it's just nice to have him around is that a useful pet anymore no it's a dead pet it's worthless if you have muffins in your house i love you okay i'm just making a sermon illustration I will have coffee with you, and I will not set my coffee cup on Muffin's head. I will be respectful of Muffin. Okay. It's worthless. What does it say, though? It's about to be cursed. Does it say that it's cursed? Does it say that it's cursed? No, it says it's about. It's in danger. It's right there on the very edge. You don't want to be in that place right there on the very edge. And at the end, it will be burned. So if you are a Hebrew person, a Jewish person, you understand fire in the Old Testament. You know that fire is the sign of God's presence in Exodus 3. It's on the burning bush. What happens to the bush? It doesn't burn. It doesn't burn. So is this the fire that it's talking about? The burning? No, because it's talking about it will be burned at the end, okay? Then there's fire that's God's discipline, In number 16, there's this whole group of people who rebel against God, and they want to take over Moses' job. And they say, Moses, you have elevated yourself above the rest of us. You are just like us, and all of us should be able to do what you do. And Moses falls down before them and before the Lord, and he is concerned for them. And he says, no, 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 you got this wrong, but I'll tell you what, God's going to sort this out. Tomorrow, we're all going to come, and the 200 and whatever of you that are rebelling, and me, we're all going to offer our incense to the Lord. We're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and we're going to see who the Lord accepts, because I don't want to fight you about this. Let's go to the Lord about this. So these are God's saved people. They've been delivered from the promised land. God has claimed them as his own, but they are rebelling against him. Although they are sons, they are not walking in fellowship with God. Although they are God's children, they are not letting him be their father. And so they come the next day, and they all do this. And Moses offers the sacrifice, and they offer their sacrifice. And it says that the ground opens up and swallows them all in their households, and they are burned with fire. Wow. That was a mistake that you don't want to make. And you're certainly not going to make it twice. You're not even going to get a chance. It says later that these people are a warning to the rest of of Israel. Now, I know this Old Testament wrath makes us uncomfortable, but we should recognize that God will judge sin. That's why Jesus came, right? But just because they received God's discipline, does that mean that they were rejected forever? No. God saved these people. He covenanted with them. He made them his own people. He called them his own people, but they received discipline. This discipline was severe. It brought death. Remember when Paul told the Corinthians that some were eating the Lord's table inappropriately and to their own judgment, and that some had fallen asleep? This is talking about their death. The early church talked about discipline, discipline from the the Lord. And they recognized that sometimes when people rebel, God shortens their earthly life to preserve their heavenly life. And that's what happened to this group of people in Numbers, so sometimes fire is sign of God's discipline. God's discipline is the sa- for the sake of your eternal existence and your purity. Next, fire is present on pleasing sacrifice. You can read about all the fire and sacrifices in the Old Testament law, if you want, in Exodus 29. There's also this really amazing story about a prophet who goes against all these prophets to false gods. And he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to see whose God is alive and active. So what's going to happen is you're going to make an altar and you're going to sacrifice to your gods. And if they are real, they're going to come down and they're going to consume the sacrifice on the altar. And the people who are doing the sacrifice are going nuts. They're offering their own blood. They're wailing and moaning. They're praying and singing. They're offering their life. All of these things, you know what happens? Nothing. And then the prophet says, You know what? This is not a fair fight. This is what I want you to do. Let's get water. Let's just douse this altar in water. It says they dug a trough around it and they doused it in so much water that it filled the trough. And then Elijah said this He said, God, if you are real, if you are holy, would you come down and accept this sacrifice? You know what happened? Fire came down from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice and it lapped up all the water and it even took everything. It was just scorched earth there. That was a pleasing sacrifice, right? Is Paul, or is the author of Hebrews saying that if you are walking away from the Lord, you're a pleasing sacrifice, and his holy fire is going to be on your life? No, but that's what happens at the beginning of Acts, right? The holy fire descends on the people, and it's a sign of a living sacrifice. Paul picks up on that later in Romans 12. So it's not a pleasing sacrifice, and then finally, it's a sign of God's judgment on his enemies. When we read about this. This is going to be part of the future. It's been part of our history. And you can read about this in Isaiah 66. So are these God's enemies? Some people say yes, because they've grown to be apostate. They're anti-Christ in their life. But if you have believed in Christ, you are reconciled eternally to God the Father. And he does not call you an enemy, even though you might call him an enemy. So they are not God's enemies. So by process of elimination... This is talking about the fire of discipline. God, because he loves them and wants to restore them, is going to discipline them. And the goal of that discipline is to bring them back, to restore them. C.S. Lewis says that pain or suffering is God's megaphone in our life. He says God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences. And pain is his megaphone. God is shouting at us in our pain. Now, this doesn't mean that God is shouting that you're under discipline if you have pain, right? Like the, not all pain is this way, but some people who are rebelling against God, even though they're his children, end up in a place where they're being disciplined. God says, don't despise that discipline, but instead cherish it. Cherish that discipline because your father loves you. So here's what we need to do. We need to not give up on grace. Don't give up on grace. Pray that those who have fallen away repent Give thanks, because God restores. God restores. It's important for you to acknowledge that, that God restores, and you don't have to fear. Whether it's now or whether it's before the the Bema seat where we're receiving our rewards, God restores. Here's the other part. Sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ fail hard. They abandon their faith, they do things that are hurtful, and it is hard for us in that time. And we have a hard time then, not with grace but with them and their sin is there anybody that you know who's a believer in christ and they've sinned in some way that you've become offended that they're outside of your grace are they outside of god's grace absolutely not we need to avoid disbelieving god's grace for them this happens in churches this is often the source of division we stop believing god's grace can save someone and so we write them off and we shut them out and we condemn them. But does God condemn them? No. That's why Jesus died, to free them of condemnation. Romans ten thirteen says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there someone who's discluded from everyone? No, everyone's really inclusive, right? Everyone is massively completely inclusive. So those people who have offended you who are outside of your grace they're not actually outside of grace and they're not outside of salvation and we need to pray that they would again call on the name of the lord so what do we do with this well i want you to be like jesus i want you to know god's grace do you know god's grace do you know god's grace and i'm not just talking about are you aware that it's in the bible God wants you to experience his grace. He wants his grace to be like your morning shower. He wants his grace to be like that cup of Folgers first thing in the morning, or good coffee if you drink that, that's fine too. God wants his grace to fuel you and be infused in your life so it is the defining factor of who you are. He wants you to live a gracious life where you are experiencing and understanding his favor and love towards you. He is the God of all all grace, and he wants you to know him in that way. Next, I encourage you to grow in God's grace. Paul actually commands this, that we would grow in the knowledge and experience of God's grace. Now, you might know God's grace, but pray that you would know it more. Because there's more grace than you can understand. Grace is an ocean and you've got a kiddie pool of it and it's wonderful. But grow your pool. Get more grace in your life. Understand it more. Pray for the lost. Yeah, I remember when everybody was like, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, Osama... It's terrible, right? Like he, he blew up the World Trade Center through a conspiracy. He, he murdered lots of people. It was like two years before I heard anybody in church say, well, maybe you ought to pray for the salvation of that guy. Because before that, we prayed that God would curse him an awful lot. But God already cursed his son on his behalf. So maybe we can grow in God's grace a little bit, right? Maybe there are people that we've written off that God doesn't write off. Maybe we've even written off ourselves and disqualified ourselves from some form of serving and loving God. Grow in your knowledge of grace. Let grace grow in your life. And then finally, share God's grace. This isn't meant to be an alone thing. You know, often when we talk about these unforgivable sins, we talk about people falling away, we become anxious, and grace becomes an inside thing, and religion becomes personal and private. And by that, I mean faith in Christ becomes personal and private. Your faith is personal, but it was never meant to be private. Your faith is a family thing with the family of God and God is always adopting new brothers and sisters, and we have this awesome assignment this side of heaven to share God's grace, but if I believe that someone could commit the unforgivable sin or they could fall away and never be restored, then I don't have to share grace with them anymore. In fact, it'd be a waste of my time, but it's never a waste of your time to share God's grace. There's always an opportunity to share God's grace, you know, I talked a, a few months ago about how I was on a, an airplane coming back from a, a funeral service for my grandmother, and the Lord put me next to a brother who was a Catholic brother in Christ. And I shared that I was so glad because I knew that my grandma was in heaven because of her faith in Christ. And he says, I hope I can go to heaven. Wow, open door to share God's grace, Right? Man, i got to tell you, there is a way that you can know today, right now, that you are going to heaven. And he was very interested in that, by the way. There are people around you who are incredibly interested in God's grace. Learn to share it. When you know it, when you're growing in it, you can't help but talk about it because it's flowing through your life and in your life. We want to be people who are defined by this grace. We don't want to be people who are defined by, with respect, questioning God's grace and wondering who it doesn't apply to. We want to be people who always remember that God's grace applies to everyone, starting with me and spreading to them. So let's be people of grace. Let's be undoubtedly people of grace. Let's recognize that our God is a prodigal father who lavishly loves. Let's not be like the older brother who's standing outside and saying, even them, God, you even saved that terrible person over there. I don't like my church anymore. Let's just not do that. Let's be people of grace instead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that is available to us in Christ. Father, we want to know more of your grace. We want to understand it from the word, but we also want to experience it. And so we pray, Father, that we wake in the morning, that we wouldn't just realize there's breath in our lungs, that there's a floor that we're going to step on, but instead we have this foundation of Jesus Christ, that everything we have is from you and for you and through you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the abundance of grace and the fullness of grace, not just for us, but for the world around us. We pray, God, that you would grow our knowledge and understanding and experience of your grace. We know, Father, that this happens through the Spirit's power. Paul prays that the power of the Spirit would reveal the fullness of your love that is your grace towards us, Father. And so we pray that you would grow the knowledge of our grace. And Father, you have called us to share grace. Forgive us for lacking grace at times, for not sharing grace with those who need it, for not extending forgiveness and restoration at times, pray that you would forgive us of bitterness, Father, people that we haven't forgiven. Help us to walk in forgiveness to everyone. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us because sometimes we become afraid of sharing the gospel. Sometimes we become ashamed of the gospel even. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to share the good news of Jesus. It is the power of salvation to those who believe and those who don't believe. Help us, Father, to become good and natural at talking about grace because it's so infused in our lives that it just becomes a part of our everyday existence. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.